You're listening to This Naked Mind with Annie Grace. Annie, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for agreeing to do it. You didn't know what you were getting into, did you? No, that's great, though. I love it. <laughs> you know, when I was looking at your bio earlier, and of course you wrote The Naked Mind and you wrote another book, The Alcohol Experiment, it said you grew up an outs. Uh, you grew up outside of Aspen, Colorado, in a one-room log cabin without running water or electricity. And I pretty much stopped there and started scratching my head, going, "Is she the daughter of Abraham Lincoln? What were you doing in a one-room cabin with no water or electricity?" So my dad was born and raised in the Bronx, and he came to Colorado to go to school, and he was very much a hippie with capital H, and he was asked to kind of carousel this this cabin, and he went there, and the people who he was asked to like caretake it didn't come back, and he's still there 50 years <laughs> later, so... I spent my entire childhood having to snowmobile. There was no accessible roads in the winter, outhouse, wow. there's no indoor plumbing. <laughs> wow. And when yeah. you first visited friends or neighbors or went to school or something, and there was a, you know an in-house toilet and running water and electricity, what did you think? Well, I first of all, I thought neighbors, my mom would like threaten us with neighbors because we didn't know what they were. And I thought they were scary. So it was like, I asked her <laughs> neighbors bite. Wow. Wow. Well, you've had an, a, that's, that's an unusual upbringing to begin with. Uh, but thank you for sharing what that was all about. Well, you quickly went beyond all of that, because when I was looking at your bio, uh, you discovered a passion for marketing, you went on and earned a master's of science and marketing, you dove into the corporate life. Uh, you were the youngest vice president in a multinational company at the age of 26. Uh, and also, that's when your drinking career began. And that's what we're going to be talking about here because you've come up with a, I'll call it a solution, alternative, an adjustment to the way most people look at alcohol and alcoholism. I'm going to finish this. At 35, in a global C-level marketing role, you were responsible for marketing in 28 countries, but you also boosted your drinking to do two bottles of wine a night, two bottles of wine a night. Now you realized that you needed to make a change and you didn't want to go through that life of deprivation and stigma. And you embarked on your own journey to discover a painlessly key, uh, way to gain control of alcohol. And according to the bio, it says you no longer want to drink. Is that still true? You no longer want to drink? No, no longer want to drink. And you have a big smile on your face and you seem happy and healthy. Um, as a result of all this work on yourself, transformation, you ended up writing this book, which apparently has done incredibly well. You sold over a million copies. You didn't plan to write the book. It was a proposal or a synopsis at one point, which you put online. So I'm piecing all of this together, and I know that you've done a bunch of interviews. So part of my struggle was, well, where do I start? And I thought I'd start with humor and go with the one cabin thing and Abraham Lincoln. But the truth of the matter is, you know, my first wife had to go into AA. She came out one evening and said she had a problem and she had been drinking. I didn't even know it. And somehow buying bottles, we were in poverty and hiding them after she drank them and admitting to me, which was one of the most memorable signs of strength that I had ever seen in my life, that she had a problem. And I, I'm broke. I'm not unknown. I'm unpublished. I'm struggling. I got dreams that are not going anywhere. And I'm like, what do I do? 
And I called a doctor, said, take her to the emergency room, emergency room, put her in an AA program. And she stayed in AA until her death, which was like 18 years. So my experience has been most people go the AA route. Why didn't you? So it was fascinating. I actually had a friend who I drank with all the time and she went to AA and she came from her first, one of her first meetings. Again, we didn't know. It's, it's, it's fascinating how the people closest don't necessarily know. And she came to my house and we usually opened a bottle of wine. She's a school teacher. So I would get done with work. She would get done with school. And I opened the bottle of wine and she's like, oh, I'm not drinking anymore. I've, I've gone to AA. And I was like, well, what does this mean about my drinking? I mean, I drink with you. I keep up. And she goes, Annie, I learned I'm an alcoholic. I was born this way and you are not an alcoholic. And so I took that as almost gospel truth. Like, mm. okay, well, and she asked me a few questions like, okay, if, if everybody leaves drinks on the table, do you go finish them off before you go, you know, do you ever leave a half a bottle in your wine of wine in the kitchen before going to bed? And she's like, I would never do that. Now at that point in my drinking, I wasn't doing those things further into my drinking. I was, and mm. So it felt at the time that like that was kind of a closed avenue for me. And I just sort of said, okay, well, I guess I'll just keep drinking. Don't really, you know, not going to worry about it. But it it did start to create problems. Right. Well, th this leads to so many doors that I can ask so many different questions and go in different directions here. Uh, part of this is at some point you decided to make a change. I know that a lot of people use the phrase, well, I hit rock bottom. That's kind of a confusing phrase in itself because rock bottom means something different to everybody. I mean, most people might think it's uh, I went bankrupt, I was divorced, I was laying bleeding and beaten drunk in the streets, and that was bottom for some people. But other people might have finished off a bottle, woke up sick and said, you know what, I'm never doing this again, and I'm going to find a way out. What was your either rock bottom or turning point to say, I'm going to do something? Yeah. And it's a fascinating term because if you think about rock bottom, and I've, I've now heard thousands and thousands of stories and people who have been in jail, gotten DUIs, lost marriages, lost, you know, um, children really, because they, they can't parent them anymore. They're taken out of their care and stopped and then went back to it. So I've, I've kind of deduced that only rock bottoms are really death or prison for a period of time, because in most cases, a lot of people, so it is more about the turning point than it is about an actual experience, which I think is an interesting nuanced way to look at it. But for me, it was a series of small moments. Like there was a moment when my four-year-old, I asked him to come sit on my lap and he's like, oh no, mom, your teeth are purple and you smell funny. And it was just like this, sucker punch to the gut like oh you know one of those moments and and these sorts of moments started to pile up and I remember coming back from a work trip I was in Heathrow airport in London and you know just sort of asking myself the questions I had started asking myself was what what's wrong with me am I an alcoholic do I have a problem and those questions are there's such a high barrier to entry like you you talked about your your wife about Wow, that was one of the most powerful, courageous things, because the amount of inner work you need to do to be able to say, I, I do have a problem, I am going to go, so many people don't get there. So many people veer off the course before even being able to ask that question, right? And 
I actually ended up asking myself in that moment a different question, finally, after, you know, not being able to just commit to, okay, I have a problem, I need to get sober, I need to get help, that that wasn't accessible to me. And, and I think it, it would have been over time, had I continued to have terrible experience and, and gone further and further towards those rock bottom experiences. But at this point in time, I feel, I feel so blessed that I actually, a different question came to me. And, and so much of my work is helping people get off the path before kind of the train crashes, you know, yeah. get, get off the train before it goes off the proverbial bridge that's out inevitably in, in drinking, a, a drinking journey. And, um, and so for me, that question was, why? Why did I used to be able to take it or leave it? Why am I now drinking it at, at levels I didn't ever expect myself to? Why does it feel like I can't relax or have a good time without a drink? And I went out to, I set out to find the answer to that question, why? And you did again, didn't look at AA? I, I didn't, I did go to one AA meeting right before I published my book. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was so in that moment, AA didn't even cross my mind. It was okay. so clear to me that I needed to understand why, like yeah. why was this? And I also was, you know, what they would call very highly functional. I didn't show any outward signs of having any sort of problem. Mm-hmm. And so I had this lingering voice in the back of my head of just not not belonging, not being, you know, in that category. But again, I would say that category yet, because it is, you know, it is a journey. I also had some confusing times with AA because I had taken my wife. She wasn't driving at that point. And I took her to the AA meeting. So I was in a whole lot of the meetings. And the first observation is the room is cloudy with cigarette smoke, (laughs) at least back then. This is in the early, late 70s, early 80s. And uh, everybody's drinking coffee. And it seemed like they had exchanged an addiction, one addiction for another addiction. Either it was the cigarette smoke or the, the coffee smoke. And the other thing that I noticed as an observer looking at this is that they were more or less cursed. They looked like there was no alternative, no way out, no way to be happy, no way maybe they can be healthy. But it really seemed like we are screwed. We are all screwed. And then, of course, the question about is this a disease slash an addiction? And it just, to me, it just got incredibly confusing. Then I'm going to say one more thing, uh, because this is your show, not mine. I want to pull the best out of you and help as many people. In the 1970s, when I was in college and I was drinking quite a bit, I remember that there were advertisements that came out that said things like, how to tell if you're an alcoholic. And I was answering all the questions. And I remember going to friends and it says, according to this, I'm an alcoholic. And they looked at me and said, no, you're not an alcoholic. You're just drinking on Fridays or Saturdays or Friday, Saturday and Sunday, whatever it was. And I remember thinking later, had I decided in 1972 that I was an alcoholic, I would have carried that label to today. But because I was confused and that whole thing was confusing to me, I just continue during that time drinking. I don't even know what I'm saying with all this. I'm trying to get. I have so much to to come in with because I know your work and and I want to talk a little bit about how impactful your work has been to me when we kind of get there in the narrative. But but I know that you're a big fan of frameworks and intellectual frameworks and and ways Mm -hmm. of thinking. And so I'll share one with you that I think really, like it, it so articulates 
where AA does fall short. And, okay. and this is, I don't know where this originated. I've put my own spin on it. So I'm, I'm not going to give the correct credit, but how I like to think about this is this paradigm of going from unconscious and incapable, right? You, you don't know that you have a problem. You are incapable to solve it because you don't even know it exists. This was me when I was drinking two bottles of wine a night. I didn't think alcohol was the problem. I literally thought that alcohol was the duct tape holding my whole life together. Like mm. my impression was like, no, alcohol is the solution to all the parenting and all the career and everything. Mm -hmm. it's, it's for sure not the problem. And mm -hmm. so I was, I was unconscious and incapable. And then boom, light switch. Oh, alcohol might be the problem. So now I'm suddenly conscious. Hmm. but totally wildly incapable. So I'm conscious that alcohol is a problem, cannot do anything to solve it. I ask myself this question, why? I go through an entire year of research while I'm still drinking, by the way. I didn't, I didn't try to stop. I didn't try to change my behavior. I just wanted to know why. And through that questioning, through that line of questioning, through that inquiry, I lost my desire to drink. And that's what this naked mind does for readers. It, it helps remove the desire at a very subconscious level. And I lost my desire to drink. And I told my husband, I'm not going to drink anymore. And, and I went from being unconscious and incapable to conscious and capable. And in AA, that's where the work stops. So you're conscious that alcohol is the problem. You are capable of not drinking. As long as you go to meetings, I have a friend, she's now 12 years sober, that same friend. She goes to meetings multiple times every single week. She, alcohol is as big or bigger in her life, although she's not drinking as it ever was when she was drinking. She has to stay firmly conscious of alcohol in order not to drink. And my work, that for me was not good enough. I would rather have kept drinking. And now I might've hit a rock bottom where I would have changed my mind. But at that point in time, I would have rather kept drinking. And my work is all about bringing someone back to, you've actually changed your emotion in addition through changing your beliefs. So you don't, you don't believe you love alcohol and it's the missing piece and poor me, I can't do it. You actually have a different set of beliefs to where, why would I even drink? That makes no sense based on what I've learned. And then you become capable, but unconscious. It's a habit. It's new. It's different. It doesn't take any effort. There's no pain. There's no. And so I think where we where we fall so short and where sobriety gets such a bad rap is we see sober people fighting to be sober, fighting to stay in sobriety. Right. And it's like, oh, and, and for me, I was like, that looks like it sucks. That's another one of the reasons I didn't choose AA. I was like, that just looks like a terrible way of life. I, I don't want to I don't want to stay stopped there. Yeah, this is beautiful, and I love the explanation. I also love what you are not only hinting at, but you're starting to unfold. I do also believe in the power of the unconscious, and most of what we do in life is driven by the unconscious, and we're unconscious in doing it. You got this one section in your wonderful book where you talk about somebody that is wearing handcuffs that somehow they were playing with them maybe, and then they got them on them, and now they're kind of up to the handcuffs, and they go to the doctor who says, that's not good for you, you really need to get out of them. <laughs> and they go to other people who say, you really need to get out of the handcuffs. But you're in the handcuffs, unconscious to how you even got there, let alone how to consciously, you know, how do I unravel all of this? I also know that you're a big fan of Alan Carr. I am. I want to write a book about Alan Carr. I so love his method and all the line of books, which have a, his method has been applied to just about anything you can think of that's considered an addiction. And you're also a fan, and so am I, of John Sarno. 
Um, those were great to see. So what your book is doing and what your method is doing is making the unconscious conscious. And my question for you is, that seems hard to do if somebody is still drinking. So this is this is so beautiful because this is exactly where you came into my life that you don't even really? know about. No, I don't. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm going to back up with my narrative so I can I can unfold how exactly it happened. Okay. But what happened was, so I asked this question: Why? I went through this entire year of all of this research, and I had these like thick. I I was just typing, um, journaling. And it was like mind explosion after mind explosion, these these mind-blowing things like, wait a second, alcohol actually releases cortisol in the body when we have just one drink. That's the stress hormone. It's, it's not relaxing me physically or chemically. It's making me more stressed. Or wait a second, alcohol actually numbs my dopamine response, which means I need more, not less of it over time. And the things that used to give me a good dopamine hit, like reading a book or going to a movie, don't work anymore. So no wonder nothing's fun without a drink. So I'm learning all this stuff and I'm like, oh my gosh. And I'm like, taking my husband, like, how do we not know this stuff? How do we not know this is true? This is crazy. And so I, I had all of this research and I was, I had put it out online and it was incredible. I just put this dirty PDF of all this research out online, 25,000 people downloaded it in two weeks. Wow. I started getting letters from all over the world. This helped me. Somebody pointed me to Alan Carr's book. And so I read Alan Carr's book and I was like, wow, what he has done is he's created this argument that like hypnotizes you it changes your subconscious mind right. and i had had my own experience with dr sarno's healing back pain where i right. went from a decade of being in pain to within two weeks picking up my kids because of a book so yeah. i knew it was possible but i didn't know how to do it and somebody pointed me to this book <laughs> this oh book i see it's like the most <laughs> like highlighted, dog-eared. I always like make all these things on the bottom because it was this book that allowed me to take my research because I had the same question. Okay, so how I know for me that my subconscious was changed through doing all this research. The yeah. question in front of me was, could I do this for another human by putting all this together in a narrative that actually wow. took someone from point A to point B? And, and honestly, it was this book. And you were talking, we were recently at an event where you were talking, yeah. I'm sitting to Russell Brunson and you mentioned that you had written this book and I hadn't made the connection right. and I'm sitting there and I'm like oh this is so crazy I can't believe that that's Joe Vitale like the Joe Vitale who wrote hypnotic writing who is literally I would credit as halfway responsible for this naked minds wow. anyway I, well, so cool. th thank you I, I got chills all over me and I'm almost speechless thank you for telling me and congratulations for applying the book Hypnotic Writing to your feet because you've done fantastic. The book is great. You've already sold, well, a million copies at one point. You probably sold a lot more than that. And so I need to bring this home. There's so many things we can talk about here. I need to bring it home because I, I am the agent that is in charge of helping the people that are watching or listening to this show. So to begin with, if somebody is drinking right now and they're thinking, you know, I kind of feel like this might not be good for me, and maybe they're playing touch and go with the dead end street and possible the, the, the turning point moment or the bottoming out. What can they do right now? What is the first liminal, the, the insight, the belief the, to do? What can they do now to begin to awaken to what's happening? So I'm going to actually answer this by touching on another point that you made earlier about your two okay. issues 
kind of with AA, which was the term alcoholic. And, yes. and I so firmly believe that the term alcoholic is such a barrier to getting help. And interestingly, medically and scientifically, they don't use that term. Nobody uses that term. It actually probably was originated with AA. They use alcohol use disorder, which is a spectrum and which doesn't label the individual, right? We don't have cocaineaholics. We don't have heroinism, but somehow with alcohol, we make over drinking about the individual, the human being. So if you're listening to this, I want you first to like, just release shame. Like this, you over drinking is not your fault. There is nothing wrong with you. You are not broken. You are not an alcoholic. There is actually no scientific thing. And just putting that down for a second, that level of judgment, that level of fear, if you imagine any habit we do, we do usually to escape pain. Mm -hmm. Drinking is primarily when it gets to be over drinking to escape pain. The pain associated with the question, am I an alcoholic, is astronomical. It involves, am I broken? Do I have a lifetime disease that there is no cure for? Will I have to go to meetings for the rest of my life? Will I have to be outside of society? Will I no longer be able to fit in with my friends and family? Like It is so much pain that instead of answering that question, we just keep drinking and often it makes it worse. And so I just want to like take that away and say, the best thing you can do is to say, okay, I might be over drinking. That's just a behavior. That doesn't, it's not my identity. It's not who I am. It's not a life sentence. It is not my fault. And I can prove to you neurologically why overdrinking is not your fault. There's stuff that happens chemically in the brain to every human being, by the way, not just a few, not just a subset of our population. And with that level of compassion, we can awaken curiosity. Well, why? Okay, why? What's stressful in my life? What am I trying to escape? What's going on? And I actually have a totally free, it will always be free. It's a 30-day alcohol experiment at alcoholexperiment.com. And it's oh, 30 good. days. You just take a break. You dip a toe. Every day is a video that rewires one of those subconscious beliefs in a 30-day format, which is just, I think, the best place for somebody to start who's who's just curious about the role. Oh, I love it. Is it the 30-day experiment or 30-day experiment? It's alcoholexperiment.com or thealcoholexperiment.com. Either one will work. Alcoholexperiment.com. Alcoholexperiment.com. Great. All right. The other question, and you mentioned this, was about disease. When I mentioned to a friend that I was going to interview you, they were talking about, oh, I had relatives and you know they were born with the disease of alcoholism. And I looked and I thought, I don't think I'm going to bring this up right here, but I'm going to bring it up to you and say, what is your response to the disease stigma that they put on people? So it, it's really fascinating because, you know, the definition of a disease is the manifestation in the body of characteristics that are like unhealthy, right? So things start to happen in the body. And I think the best the best way to look at it is almost like type one or type two diabetes, where one of them someone's born with their body just doesn't produce the right amount of insulin. It happens from from birth. You have to the other one is created in response to overexposure to an environmental toxin. And alcohol is much more like a, quote, disease in that way. Whereas if we overexpose our bodies to a toxin, our bodies will then have a response that mirrors or mimics a, quote, disease. And mm -hmm. so, the, but the failure in that conversation when we write alcohol off as a disease is it says exactly what I did when my friend said, hey, you're not an alcoholic. I was born this way. What did mm -hmm. I do? I said, okay, I'll just keep drinking. 
doesn't apply to me. It's a Mm -hmm. fraction of percentage of the population of which I'm not a part of. And when we do that, then we just allow the problem to fester. Hmm. And what about, so are you saying it is a disease or it isn't disease? I'm not sure I got a a clear understanding with that. I am saying that I don't think it is a disease that you are Mm -hmm. born with. I think that it can have aspects of anything that becomes harmful for us in terms of like a disease is, you know, something that ends up having symptoms. Mm -hmm. We can have symptoms, but they're not symptoms because you're born Mm -hmm. addicted to alcohol. Now there is fetal alcohol syndrome. That's totally separate from our conversation, but just to caveat, to keep the up and up Mm -hmm. factually, Mm -hmm. but as an adult human being, your first drink is not what takes you to two bottles. It is the progression of drinking multiple things, you know, multiple toxins over time that Mm -hmm. creates the response. Um, Mm -hmm. You have a lot of um, belief busting that goes on in your book, The Naked Mind, which I absolutely love because I love busting beliefs. Uh, The whole this whole show is called Zero Limits Living. What we want to do is bust the beliefs that are keeping us from zero limits living, from being able to express our mission and our joy. And one of them is about alcohol tastes good or it'll grow on you. I did become a scotch drinker, but I do remember in college when I had the first taste or two, it was like, who drinks this crap? This this is awful. This is burning. This actually hurts. <laughs> if you're having the very first drink for the very first time, it's like you got this innocent babe of a body that you just threw almost like lit kerosene down it. But you keep doing it and you kind of numb it. And then, of course, the drink itself is numbing your reactions to it, and you also create a habit out of it. And so I find it it was uh, insightful to see the different beliefs. Is there a particular belief that you found when you blow the whistle on it, it frees a lot of energy around the whole idea of drinking? Was there one belief that seemed to be more powerful when it was revealed to be false? Yeah, I think so. And I think really it's it's the belief about alcohol um, makes things more fun because wow. it's it's really hard for us to admit that we're self-medicating, right? And so when you think again of, if we think about the taste one, that one's pretty fun to debunk because you're like, we all can remember that. There's actually a whole yeah. YouTube series of videos of people having their first drink who have never drank and the, the expressions on their faces <laughs> are like, oh, even if you're an adult and you've never drank, you're like, what? And and pure alcohol tastes terrible. Right. Your body instinctually would reject it. But then we cognitively say, but everybody's doing it, it must be good. I must, there must be something here for us. Mm-hmm. Then we keep drinking. And what happens was, is the brain adapts to it. You know, the disease function comes in in the, the form of like the group of symptoms of craving and withdrawal and all of those sorts of things. And then we have what looks like a disease because your brain has adapted. But the one that really, I think that stops people in their tracks is this. And it's simply that alcohol is a very unique substance in that it's both a stimulant and a depressant. And so what that means is as you drink your first 20 minutes or so of that alcohol entering your body, it is a stimulant. It acts as a stimulant, which means you feel that floaty, euphoric, kind of tipsy feeling. Now, if you time this, and I encourage you, especially if you're over drinking, time this for yourself. It is between 18 and 22 minutes, sometimes on the longer side, 22, if you've just had a meal. Hmm. And you feel that nice tipsy feeling that is why we keep drinking. Now, it peaks, the blood alcohol content is rising in your bloodstream is what's happening during that. It's a, it's acting as a stimulant. It peaks about 20 minutes after that first drink, 
the blood alcohol starts to fall in your bloodstream because alcohol is a toxin to the body. And the body says, oh my gosh, job one, get rid of the alcohol. Your body actually stops digesting food. It stops regulating your blood sugar. All sorts of things happen so that the body can purge the alcohol from your system because wow. the body identifies it as a toxin. At that point, your blood alcohol starts falling and alcohol becomes a depressant. And the depressant nature of alcohol is uneasiness, tiredness, feeling uncomfortable in your own skin, irritability. Mm. And you feel that for one drink for two to three hours in exchange for the 20 minutes of feeling good. Now, what we do is about 20 minutes after the first drink, we reach for the second drink and we keep going a little longer, we reach for the third drink. But then we feel a cumulative of like 12 to 15 hours of that depressant feeling. We wake up with anxiety. We don't connect it to the night's drinking before. And what we realize when people realize, I call it an unfair trade. I actually wrote a kid's book and this is one of the chapters, an unfair trade when you're exchanging because that it's never 20 minutes again. It's shorter every time and it never gets back to where it was because the depressant mm -hmm. is already active in your system. So you've counterbalanced it. Mm -hmm. So you're literally trading 20 minutes for, you know, this cumulative uncomfort, depressing feeling. And when people get that and understand it, and then more than even understanding it cognitively, test it in their own life, like have a drink and then don't have another drink for another hour. See how you feel for the next 40 minutes. You get a real clear feeling of like, oh yeah, no, I don't feel as good as I thought I would. And it's, it's fascinating. I know for some of the meetings I went uh, in AA and of course that was decades ago, but I remember some of the things. And one of them was they had a slogan that said, you take the first drink. The next drink was taken by that drink. Meaning that consciously you went or unconsciously you were driven to it, but you've made a choice to have the first drink from then on out. It's the drink itself that has diluted your brain, made it easier for you to make the decision to just keep on drinking. And so that leads to the question, can we just get away with one drink? Can't we just have one? You can. I actually have a free ebook about this too. It's called, it's at the URL, canimoderate.com. And it's the canimoderate.com. Okay. The six things you need to know according to science when you're thinking about moderating alcohol. And one of those things is the fact that one drink does affect your prefrontal cortex, which is your ability to make long-term decisions. So that AA, AA saying is, is very much founded in neuroscience in the sense of that one drink will, in the moment, diminish your brain's ability to make a good decision about the subsequent drinks. Um, so there is truth to that. We do have a very strong prefrontal cortex, though. And if we make ourselves a rule, so I think moderation is possible. People in AA don't like me saying that, but I've seen it too many times for it not to be true. I think we just have to be willing to put the conscious effort into it. You know, it's much easier to not drink at all than it is to stop after one. There's much more reward because of what I just explained to you, that one drink is going to give you two to three hours of unease. So once you understand all of this, a lot of people in my community, you know, make the decision not to drink. But, you know, my statistics, I did a I did a study on my community saying, what is your, what are the results of, of you encountering? during my work and 54% of people no longer drink, 36% of people drink less. So they are to some degree moderating. And um, yeah, so it is absolutely possible. It's just be aware, know exactly what's happening in your body and brain and then put the choice into it, right? Like I'm aware that, you know, ice cream is going to do X, Y, and Z, but I want an ice cream. So go ahead. Right. But just, it, it's all for me about no rules, just total consciousness and awareness. And oh, then you make decisions you love.
That that is beautiful right there. And so because our time is so condensed here, I, I have to hit some points that I think are really important. And I may not give the opportunity to explain everything, but I, I got to at least try. So we've been focused on if somebody's watching or listening and they they think they may be drinking too much, what can they do? So you've been addressing that. But what if there's somebody watching or listening and their spouse they suspect is drinking too much? That seems like it's a minefield. There's an opportunity for dynamite to go off. How do you tread quietly, softly, respectfully there? How yeah, do you help somebody you care about? That that one is really, um, it really is. And and I think that all the science shows that compassion, self-compassion primarily, but then compassion from other people are the most important way for somebody to change. Nobody wants advice they don't ask for. So you're entrenching yourself when you're trying to force change on somebody else, which can be really hard to handle when you see somebody deteriorating. Um, for your listeners, uh, I, I have a course that I created that's called Helping a Loved One. Oh. It's not publicly available. It's just for people in my programs for their spouses. But if anybody would want it, they can email me at hello at thisnakedmind.com and we'd be happy to send it. Um, oh, but it's six nice. videos and it's called Helping a Loved One. And it's just for, you know, for people who are in my programs who they want to talk like, hey, you know, something like, hey, this is how you can be supportive. This is what's really not helpful. It's mm -hmm. really well thought out about how you can actually um, take care of yourself primarily when somebody you love is suffering and also how you can approach it in a way that would be more useful than than counterproductive. And that's uh, an email to hello at this naked mind.com. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. That's very generous to do it. Well, it also leads to another possible minefield kind of a question. But there's this whole thing about children who are raised or grow up in a family where one or more of the parents are are drinking too much. How do we help the children? How do we help them not to drink? or if they have started to drink, how to stop, or even understand what's going on with their parents, or maybe their brother or sister. Yeah, oh, the, ch the children is such a, it's such a passion project for me, in fact. So mm. I'm a traditionally published author, and I had this idea for a kid's book. And I got rejected by my publisher and by my agents because they're just like, there's no market for this. So mm -hmm. I just like self-funded the whole thing and just put it out in the world. It's called Buzz to Buzzkill and it's available only on Amazon because it's not in bookstores because it's self-published, but um, it is for kids and it's for okay. kids really between the ages of 10 and, you know, even to adults, it's it's helpful, but it, it just really explains the science. Kids are so thirsty for science like they mm -hmm. they want to know they want to um they just love they i think they're ahead of us in a lot of ways in terms of their right. desire for knowledge and understanding and uh if you have a parent who's drinking um yeah that's just that's just tough i mean i i guess i'd again recommend the helping a loved one but in general i think compassion is the most important thing and just as much as you can you know, loving the person despite the behavior and understanding, you know, we in our society, I think we have tied way too closely worthiness and behavior. We have staked people's entire worthiness as human beings on their behavior. Are they drinking? Or are they not drinking? Are they behaving well? Or are they not behaving well? And if somehow in our hearts, we can undo that and, and see the person and love them and see their worthiness aside from their behavior, because, um, and even reading this naked mind, this naked mind a lot of people who have parents who have overdrank, it, it helps you understand why, you know, yeah. you might be really triggered when I say it's not your fault. You're like, no, you don't know my dad. It is his fault. He's a, he's a jerk. Right. Yeah. But 
understanding the science behind why it is happening, I think can be really powerful for someone who um, has been hurt by someone who's, who's been a drinker. Uh, that's a great answer. Thank you for that. And I love that you go with compassion. And you've mentioned compassion two or three times. I held up one of my recent books, Unexpected Kindness. So I, I'm all for compassion. But as the person who's representing some of the people who might be the devil's advocate out there, there's a lot of people who might say, well, you can't be compassionate to these people. You actually have to be blunt. You have to practice tough love. I'm trying to think of the phrases they would use. But if you could practice compassion, you're just kind of bending over and letting them run over you. You know, you're just being a, your head in the sand kind of a person. How do you respond to that when you're saying, hey, open your heart, be compassionate. And they're saying compassion, be damned. We need to do something. We need to have a interruption and interface. We need to do something here. Yeah, I think this really becomes a personal boundaries conversation, which which mm. can be such a, a difficult thing. And everybody is free to choose how they treat somebody. I just know scientifically, um, many studies, all of my work, that the person who is over drinking, even though they're not showing it, they're hating themselves more than you're hating them. And they can't show that because they're in the handcuffs. So they yeah. can't hate themselves for being in the handcuffs or trying to defend the handcuffs because they don't know how to get out of the handcuffs, right? Wow. And so... Um, but I also think that there has to be a point at which you're not sacrificing yourself. And so the boundaries conversation for me is much less about, I'm going to have a boundary for you where you do what I say or what I want. Otherwise you're in trouble. It's look, I love you no matter what this is. There's a, a man on my team. He's been with me since the very beginning. He was employee number one. And he came to me. He actually designed the cover for the original, this naked mind. He came to me because his wife was over drinking and she would come home some nights just so drunk and they couldn't even, they were just, it was just going to be a fight. And he's like, look, I love you so much. The next time you do that, I'm going to go to a hotel. And that's what he did. And it never happened again. And it was with full love, full compassion, mm -hmm. and I will take the responsibility for removing myself from this situation. Wow. That, and that is a real boundary because it's it's created with love and it's created where I, the one creating the boundary, have all the power to enforce it. That is a beautiful example. Thank you for giving me that. So uh, again, I'm aware of time constraints and I'm trying to ask very pinpointed revealing enlightening questions so one of the questions i want to ask is what's the que best question you've ever heard on all these interviews all the interviews you've been doing since the naked mind came out what opened you up or you thought oh that was a great that was a great question what was that question and what's the answer to that question i love that's that's such a that might be it right there um because <laughs> wow that's such a good question i actually was interviewed by uh dan harris who is um for years i know dan harris he interviewed as uh, a long story <laughs> he is a very intense interviewer because he's right. an investigative reporter and it was that's the right. most that's right. intense interview in my life and i had said something yeah. in that interview where um, i was like look curiosity is like the most important thing because if you're curious you can't be judging yourself and then i had said later in that interview self-compassion is the most important thing and he's like annie you've just yeah. given me two most important things yeah. you know which one is it and i think that was probably the best question because it really put me on the spot but i was also like actually i think they can't exist without each other if you are judging yourself you can't be curious you can't be curious about why am i drinking too much and the reality is that if you are over drinking, if you start from a place of, I am drinking at some level, a form of self-love. 
It really truly is. And I know that sounds totally radical, but probably you're in pain. I was in a lot of pain. I was living a life that was totally outside of like where I was operating in a level that I was drinking in order to handle how much I was traveling, the little kids, the corporate lifestyle, the stress. And so my numbing myself with alcohol was at its core, a form of self-love. And you stop demonizing the part of you that's making you over drink. That unlocks a level of compassion that allows you to actually look at this and change it. And so curiosity and compassion for me, they're like intertwined because if you're judging yourself, you cannot be curious. If, if, but if you're curious and if you start with the premise that you are doing the best you can with the tools you have, then you have both curiosity and compassion. And that really unlocks this ability to change. That is a wonderful answer. That's, I'm glad you, uh, you found the win-win when talking to Dan Harris there. Uh, was yeah, you put it together. All right. So uh, the other thing is, when I was in going to the AA meetings, I noticed that they seem to be substituting the addiction of drinking with other addictions. How did you fill in the hole? And how do other people I know you ski, I think there was something in your bio about you've been skiing in 25 countries or something like that. Uh, how do you or how do you even recommend when somebody is thinking they're going, well, if I don't drink, what do I do? I'm, I got this opening where I used to, you know, in AA, they're lighting cigarettes and they're drinking coffee from my past experience. I don't know what they do today. For me, I feel like in some ways my whole life began when I stopped drinking, because here's the thing. It is not easy. And I know you are, you are someone who has been on a growth journey since yeah. I can't, I, I don't even know when you weren't. And it is not easy, but when you stop numbing the things that you are trying to escape from, you have to build a life you don't actually want to escape from. And for me, actually putting down the drink, putting down the numbing agent was the first step in that. And I think we have a choice. We can find something else to numb with, or we can say, okay, this, this is life. Life is about learning how to live in a way that I actually feel joyful and happy and fulfilled regularly. And that's possible. And it's possible without any like substance that's harmful for it. Right. And so that journey, it's, it's difficult, it's hard, it's challenging, but it is the most rewarding and I dare say addictive journey that I have ever been on. And so it really truly is about solving all the reasons you were drinking in the first place, of which I do think AA does some with their 12 steps. But I also think that it's so easy for us, unless we see it clearly, to just swap one thing for another. Wow. Well, I know we want everybody to go get your book, The Snake in Mind. Do you work with people? Do you do counseling or coaching or mentoring one-on-one -on -one things with people? I don't do anything one-on-one -on -one anymore, but I have, I have The Snake in Mind Institute where I've certified almost 300 coaches. And we oh, run... Wow a monthly cohort of a program called The Path, which mm -hmm. is a, um, a year-long coaching program for someone who feels really stuck. And mm -hmm. so they can come into that. And then we have a Live Naked program, which is about after that day one, doing all the things to build that life you don't want to escape from. Now, yeah. livenaked.com. How many nudists have signed up for that, thinking it's this is a completely different subject than what I thought it was going to be? Which raises the question, why the title, The Naked Mind? What were you referring to? So for me, uh, it, it was really like twofold. I was searching for a book title and I was eating bare naked granola one morning, which is all about organic, no pollutants, you know, no additives, 
granola. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And then I started thinking about like how the word naked, like how you come into the world, right? And I wanted my book to be, and in fact, I say it right in the introduction, not about getting sober, but going back to the state of mind of before you ever had a drink, where you don't want it, you don't miss it, you're not living in a state of deprivation, you've actually kind of gone back in time to the unwired, naked, unformed version of yourself, because we don't come out of the womb wanting alcohol, we're not children needing a drink at, you know, birthday parties, that's learned behavior. So it's all about unlearning and taking it away. That's beautiful. In fact, it sounds very Zen-like. It sounds like you are going back to the uh, the original face. Sounds so like speak. I grew up in a cabin with some hippie parents and a lot of meditation. <laughs> <laughs> All of that lack of electricity apparently paid off because now you're you have electricity, but in a different form. You're delivering it through your words, your writing, your speaking, and the difference that you're making. All right. In the time we have left, you knew that I was going to be interviewing you. You knew you had heard me speak at Russell Brunson's thing. You remembered the hypnotic writing thing. And you knew we were going to talk about your book, The Naked Mind. What were you hoping I would ask you? Was there a question you were saying, oh, I hope Dr. Joe asked me this. I will give me a chance to talk about such and such. Or was there a question you were hoping I would never ask you? <laughs> well, don't don't well, ask this, Dr. Joe. <laughs> I was I was really just hoping that... I would have the opportunity to tell you about the impact you've had in my life um, through your work. And that's, that's the truth of the answer. That's um, was my main motivation for, I mean, I'm so honored to be on the interview, but I just really wanted to be able to say thank you in person. Uh, it, it honestly, I, I mean, I'm emotional about it, but I don't think this thinking mind would exist without this book. I, I feel wow. like this gave me the keys and I was relooking through it today and um, it it was so powerful. And it's funny because it's not even, it, it's written for all sorts of writing, but it's right. also written for marketing writing and, and right. copywriting, but it's, it, the, the principles are the same and mm -hmm. the ability for me to be able to help people. It, it's just such a beautiful testimony to how we iterate on each other's work, how the ripple effect happens, how somebody puts mm -hmm. something into the world and things happen you can never imagine. And yeah. now there's this, this whole other aspect of your work in the world through me. And I just, I just, you know, it's very rare. I didn't get to say um, thank you to Dr. Sarno before he passed, right. uh, but I, I could say thank you to you. So I, I just say- I thank appreciate you. it. Thank you very much. Hypnotic writing was my very first ebook and it was published years later. So it's still in print now, but it's had its own little journey that- Someday, uh, over coffee, not a drink, I'll tell you all about it. Perfect. The the other thing is, this show is called Zero Limits Living, and I usually ask people if, the, if we actually have any limits, and I'll adapt that question for you and say, do we have any limits in escaping or controlling your book? The subtitle is Control Alcohol. Can anybody control alcohol? Can anybody that's watching and listening to this show Zero Limits Living, we're pointing in the direction of, yeah, you can be free. Can anybody be free of alcohol? Well, I, for me, I believe the best way to control alcohol is not to ingest it. And I think yeah. we are volitional creatures. We have choice and we can make that choice. And I think if we make that choice, uh, not necessarily through willpower or rules or fear, but actually through doing the the work to rewire how we emotionally feel towards drinking. Um, it can be a choice that is really fulfilling and not scary at all. So yes, I think anybody can do it. Thank you. As a final question, it's just an opportunity for you to tell a story about somebody who's read the book or you've worked with and had a transformation in their relationship to alcohol. Is there a story that comes to mind, somebody that read the book and wrote to you later or 
somebody you know personally or worked with? So one of my my first first coach certification events, and all my coaches have found their own freedom through my work. Um, this story was one woman. She was from Australia. She came and she flew all the way from Australia to Denver, Colorado, to get certified. And she came with a video from her daughter. And um, her daughter has grown. And her daughter just told me, "Thank you for giving me my mom back." And like for me, like that's the motivation, right? That's the thing is like the kids who yeah. are going to bed without that bedtime story and how I remember rushing through bedtime with my glass of wine right there on the nightstand. And I remember being that mom and um, just being so grateful that uh, I got off that train before it crashed and, and that other people are able to as well. Wow, that is fantastic. Annie, you are doing amazing work. You're helping a lot of people and saving lives by what you're doing. So thank you for what you are doing and thank you for agreeing to be here. Where do you want people to go? I know you have the nakedmind.com as a book website, I guess. Is that the site you want folks to go to or somewhere else? Well, I have a I have a podcast, This Naked Mind, where you can hear people's stories. And then oh, great. alcoholexperiment.com is really, if you're curious, that's the best way to go. Um if you're curious about your own drinking and, mm -hmm. but really anywhere, I mean, pretty easy to find. <laughs> <laughs> I tell people I'm not hiding. Just do a Google search. You'll find me. I'm on Instagram, Facebook. Apparently it's the same with you. Annie, last words. Here's your opportunity. You want to say something else? You want to tell a story, a quote, a tip, a takeaway, a to do. Well, all I want to say is thank you. So that's a great one. Thank you. I will accept that. And I'll say it back to you. Thank you. I've been talking to Annie Grace. She's the author of This Naked Mind. Go get it and go follow all of her different links. You've been watching Zero Limits Living. I'm Dr. Joe Vitale. I'm putting all the episodes at ZeroLimitsLivingTV.com. But you can see or watch this program on 1,000 platforms across the galaxy. So anything you can probably name or you're using right now, but also Apple and Amazon and Roku and Spotify and all the other ones. Check out Miracles Coaching, miraclescoaching.com. I want to thank Lux Media Studios, Candace Barr, Chris running the engineering. And I want to thank all of you. You're the ones that as you awaken yourself, you're awakening the planet. I love you all. Expect miracles. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you're ready to see how this naked mind can help you on your personal health and wellness journey and want to learn more, go to thisnakedmindpodcast.com to learn what your next best step is. Again, that's thisnakedmindpodcast.com. We have all of our free resources, programs, social links, and more available for you there. Plus, if you have your own naked life story to share, you can submit it there as well. Until next week, stay curious. 